0: friends romans countrymen lend me hear your ears ladies and gentlemen you're tuned to the mc lars podcast this is episode 58 it is october 7th 2019 i'm here with blake j harris this week but before we get into that i wanted to give a shout out to my tour mates oakley doakley they dress up like ned flanders and play heavy metal or as they call it heavy nettle you may have seen one of their music videos at the end of the simpsons recently they're very fun to tour with we've been on tour in the west coast today i play arcada california by myself which is in the top part of the state i love that area so much i'm so thankful to be able to come and play a show For the fans up there, I'm by myself for the Arcata show, but I've been in California with my homies. And then tomorrow we play Bellingham, Washington, then Portland, Oregon, then Seattle, Washington, and we end the tour in Denver on the 13th. So nerdcoretour.com for tickets and all of that please come say what's up blake j harris this dude is a g we wrote Megaran and i wrote a song about the console wars and i just cold emailed him from his website he listened to it emailed us back told us how much he loved it and we kept in touch he lives in new york um He is someone who has interesting perspective because whereas a lot of like technological historians are very obsessed with the technical developments, I love Harris's work because he really focuses on the human side of the stories. And Consul Wars is such an amazing book. We get into it on the podcast, how Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg turned it into a TV series and a documentary because they just thought it was a cool idea. But I love the book because he really brings the drama to life of the competition. And so we get into some of his inspiration for his works. We talk about his new book, The History of the Future, about virtual reality. And Blake J. Harris, he's a freaking awesome dude. And he's the kind of guy I feel like I could be friends with. So this week's episode is brought to you by the Patreon Larson's. Shout out to the new ones, Cold Guy, Jeff Christian, and Chris Shirley. Thank y'all. And some of the old OGs, Mark Hoffman, Mike Chellen, and Becca Alden. Patreon.com slash MC Lars. You sign up, you get two new songs a month. You get access to the entire proprietary back catalog of MC Lars songs. You get merch. You get the phone number where you can call and be on the show. It's all good. So be sure to check that out. But In the meantime, this is my interview with the legendary author and historian, Blake J. Harris. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with Blake J. Harris, author, screenwriter, producer, He's written for ESPN, IGN, Fast Company, The Opinion Post, and the AV Club. He has two wonderful books out that I recommend you all check out. Console Wars, Sega Nintendo, and The Battle That Defined a Generation, and The History of the Future, Oculus, Facebook, and The Revolution That Swept Virtual Reality, Blake, thank you for being on the podcast, man.
1: Did I get all that right? You got it all right. Sounds very impressive when you put my <laughs> seven years of my life together like that. And thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a big fan of yours, especially your console wars inspired song. Hey. But it's cool to meet in person. I, it's really nice.
0: Thank you, Blake. We, we met because Megarin and I wrote that song and then I, I, we, I just emailed you from your site and you were kind enough to listen and write us back. And we were so excited when you when you checked out the song.
1: Yeah, which I don't get because I was the one who was like fanboying out, like so excited, like, oh my God, these guys wrote a song about this book. And I, as I told you when I first got here, you know, I'm I'm hoping that we can maybe use it in the documentary because it's so, it's so good. It's also so thematically and like narratively on point. So.
0: Thanks, man. We, we, yeah, it was fun because it was like Mega Ren and I was like, all right, we have homework. We got to read this book, figure out the points, figure out, the, follow the drama arc and then and name check all the important characters. And it's a really special book because, well, obviously you are you were or are passionate about video games, would you say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm sure we'll get a little bit into my backstory in a bit. But um, basically the thing is that I suck at video games. Like I I, I never really got into first-person shooters, which is a lot of what it is. So um, I, I suck at that. I don't really play that. I play a lot of stuff on the Nintendo Switch because that's more my speed. But because I feel such a, um, a a debt to the to the industry of video games because that's made my career and because I think not enough people cover it the way that I cover it like I even if I don't play destiny or call of Duty like I'm so interested in the making of process and um, so yeah so I, I, I love the gaming space
0: and it changes so quickly I mean I remember there I felt like there was a shift when one of my albums the biggest press I got was on the IGN website realizing that, Video games were drive started to drive culture, and I seeing that shift. Like when I started doing music, like maybe fifteen years ago, a little bit longer. Like that, there's so much to keep up with. It used to be movies and music were enough, but now it's like video games kind of combine all that. You know?
1: Yeah, yeah. it really does, and that's kind of where we're headed in a sense. Not to get like too far out there or potentially dystopian, but just the idea of you know, so much of the video games being made today, or at least the number of people, because there's so many independent creators that are making video games, maybe it's not the AAA game, definitely not the AAA games that you know, but they're using these game engines like Unity and Unreal, and those get more and more cinematic and movie-like as we go on, where you're buying assets, you know, you're buying the best-looking trees, and um, you know, we are going to get to a place where um, what you're making looks, you know, right now it could be like a pixar-esque movie but like you know as those things get more and more lifelike you know you're going to be sort of directing from your computer this virtual world that looks quite real
0: and yeah and that's exciting that's exciting if as long as like the narrative and the humanity still there you know if, if it's all becomes ai storytelling it might be this kind of uncanny valley kind of vibe
1: yeah um, it'll be interesting too because uh you know i think one of the one of the, co- obviously inherently one of the coolest things about video games, like an open world game, like even just GTA is, you know, anything can happen. You're, you're, you have total autonomy and that's awesome. But that's also the opposite of what's so cool about movies and music and books, which is that the director is sort of creating a very specific experience and that it's a shared experience. And I like, I, maybe I'm just old fashioned, mm. but I love having that shared cultural experience with people. Um, and, you know, one person's GTA experience is going to be so different than another's, whereas, you know, seeing... Batman Forever, an awesome movie. is like, you know, we're both going to have the same experience even if I might think it's amazing and you might think it's not as good.
0: Because with the open world sandbox, right, if we were both to discuss GTA or maybe Mario Odyssey, we, we I might mention something that you'd didn't know about a certain level right. it's a, a different frame of reference and
1: yeah it's a lot know. more like i was trying to think about, about an analogy it's a lot more like going on vacation like i would say to you like going to hawaii is awesome and you're like i love hawaii too but the things we love about hawaii are very different though there probably is just sort of like a vibe uh-huh. to it that is a little je ne sais quoi aspect that it does share in common but everyone's experience can be different
0: um you are you grew up in chappaqua in westchester county
1: Yes, I grew up in Chappaqua, home to the Clinton family. Hey! Prior to writing *Console Wars*, I think my biggest claim to fame was that in fifth grade, I dated the girl who would later run over the Clinton's dog. <laughs> that was like my pickup line. No, that was like—is <laughs> that true? <laughs> it is. was a, yes, Oh it, my! God. I wouldn't make up such a sad fact. Yes.
0: Wow. So you dated her before? Or after.
1: I dated her before.
0: Right. Oh my gosh and yeah. so so you were na- so the clintons were your neighbors
1: yeah but the clintons moved there during i think like my sophomore junior year of high school so it was a very big deal at the time yeah um but i'm sure it's different than people growing up in chappaqua now where the clintons are sort of part, part of the fabric of the, the small town
0: and Hil- where does hillary live does she live up there now or she's in rhinebeck or
1: i think they're they're mostly up there yeah though uh you know one uh I, I definitely voted for Hillary and I was devastated when she lost and when this might be relevant because we'll maybe get into politics right. with my new book later, but yeah. but I always thought it was like a bad sign for her and a good sign for Bill that um, although I don't live in Chappaqua anymore, I have a lot of friends and fam, you know, fr- their families that live there and they would always say such nice things about Bill. Like he was such a member of the town and I was like, well, what about Hillary? And they're like, we just never see her. She was never there. And obviously it's partly because she's busy, but I think she also, uh, you know, she doesn't have that Bonding ability that bill has, yeah, right
0: that that warm networking, ability. yeah like everyone
1: was like, oh, every time you walk into Lang's little store deli, bill's there, and he knows your name, and like he puts a smile on your face, and uh I don't know uh, I guess <laughs> as someone who grew up liking bill, it's nice to hear that, but it was a bummer that Hillary wasn't making that same impression on my childhood town
0: <laughs> you were i I saw a podcast where you talked about how you've always voted Democrat as a Democrat, yeah. and um. So what, so what year did you graduate high school?
1: I graduated from Horace Greeley, the high school there, in 01.
0: Oh, we're same age.
1: Oh, okay. That's yeah. awesome. Where'd yeah. you grow up?
0: I grew up in California, like okay. Central Coast, near the Bay Area. And so the first candidate I voted for was um, Al Gore, because I just turned 18 right before the 2000
1: election. So that's good. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm December, so I missed it by like a month <laughs> and a half. Oh, wow. uh, but I was very upset when uh, Gore lost to Bush. I was very excited for that like 15 minute time when I thought Gore had gotten Florida and beaten Bush. Um, right, right. The truth, truth,
0: like that was an interesting introduction to politics. Like truth isn't always. There's no real political truth. You know what I mean? Like that was a shift. If yeah, like. I
1: definitely didn't feel that way back then. Now <laughs> I absolutely feel that way because like I just like for me, I guess it started to happen four years later. The first election that I did vote in, I voted for John Kerry. And I remember I was in London visiting my girlfriend at the time and we watched the debate. And I, I know, it was like probably the first time I really sat through and watched like a full two hour debate. And yeah. I just remember walking away being like, oh, Harry crushed Bush. Like there's not a single person who could vote for Bush. And meanwhile, like Bush apparently did better than expected. And so yeah. he yeah. won and he obviously won the election. But so that was my first introduction to, the, you know, it could be the same scene and different people of different political stripes see it very differently. <laughs>
0: That, well, that's interesting, talking about like the open world. <laughs> like to make a metaphorical connection. yeah. Um, then you were then you started writing screenplays, right? You like, was that after high school and college, was that your first inroad into writing? or
1: so what happened was, um I, basically for most of my childhood and high school, uh, I was pretty lazy, I would say, or I definitely was not intellectually curious. But um, hmm. then it wasn't until my senior year in high school that I started reading books for fun, and I first started reading like *Catch* and *The Ryan*, *Great Gatsby*. All these books that I had never read that I should have read, or that I maybe had done the Cliff's Notes for, but never actually cared hmm. about. Um, and then after I fell in love with reading and thought, like, "Wow, I'd love to be a person who's writing these kinds of things," and I went to. Georgetown for college. And by, you know, by the end of my freshman year, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. Like that was my dream. I certainly didn't have the talent at that point. Um, but I started writing short stories and stuff. Uh, my junior year, I went abroad and I went abroad to Spain purely because it was like the me- the least amount of courses. So I'd have the most amount of time to write a novel, which I did. Wow. Um, and I'm sure it sucks. You know, like, did you ever release it or is it? <laughs> release it as if someone would want to read this thing. No, I never did. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like I, at least I like, I, I started putting in the reps and I definitely think there is, there's uh validity to like the sort of the 10,000 hours aspect thing. Like, cause uh, it was just, I, it was what I always wanted to do. Whenever I had free time, I would write or I would be reading and thinking about writing. And, um, and, and I guess like I did always want to write the great American novel. That was the initial dream, but um i had no idea how to monetize writing uh what the career path would be um i applied to some film schools and some creative writing mfa programs mostly just because that was like a path right and you know i was like a a good jewish boy growing up and my parents wanted me a doctor lawyer and they they wanted me on a path like you're going somewhere right and i'm like well i'm getting better at writing but that wasn't like a certificated path (laughs) so uh I ended up getting into a few schools, got rejected from most of them, um, and uh, I ended up decide like, uh, I, I thought I could either go to a an M- creative writing MFA program, like I got into the new school, um, or I can go to a film school at Loyola Marymount, but I kind of realized that one thing I had that most writers don't have uh, was not talent, but it was that um, I was self-sufficient and self Um, I was like a self-starter, you know, like I I did write a lot of stuff and I, and I spoke to people who went to school and they said that was the most, that was, that was their best part of film school or creative writing school for them was that it made them write. And I was like, well, I'm going to write anyway. So maybe I don't want to come out of the school, a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Right, And so I ended up getting a job. Trading commodities for a financial broker in New York and I traded sugar coffee and soybean futures for Brazilian clients for seven and a half years from the week after I graduated college until literally the day of my 30th birthday and that was what I did throughout my entire 20s and one of the best parts of that job was that the market for commodities futures closed at 215 so I would get out of there at 215 and be able mm. to work on screenwriting, um, which I thought was my best chance at finding some, uh, you know, Financial success or career, but um, then I also produced a couple of movies and spec spec TV shows, pilots,
0: and so one of which was the Flying Scissors. Yes. So so talk. Can we talk about that briefly? Yeah. What I was that, that like? It was like a mo- it's a mockumentary, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the Flying Scissors was like a ninety minute long mockumentary about competitive rock paper scissors, and this was at a time when. Arrested Development was canceled, so it was like my favorite show in the world, but it felt like only a few people, brilliant people like me appreciated it. (laughs) Uh, And The Office was just starting on NBC and that wasn't doing so well, but it was like, you know, like totally in my wheelhouse. And so uh, my buddy, Jonah Toulis and I, I had went to high school with Jonah and he's currently my co-director on the Console Wars documentary. So someone who I've had a very long and nice relationship with, but we went through some tough years and, you know, we wrote the script for the flying scissors for this movie about competitive rock paper scissors and mockumentary. And then Jonah who had a background in film at Colgate, uh, whereas my background is a little more in writing. He's like, Hey, we should produce this. Like we should make it. And I was like, eh. uh, and I was like, well, like, I was saving up money at that point to go to to maybe try to go, like, give a film school another shot. I was living with my grandma, so I was saving a lot of money. And I said, like, "Oh, how much do you think we can make it for?" And he said, "Oh, you know, like five thousand dollars." And I was like, "All right, well, I can wow. put in twenty five hundred, and he'll put in twenty five hundred, like whatever. Like, it's a lot of money, but it's worth it." Well, as these things often happen, especially the first time, it ended up costing about one hundred twenty five thousand dollars. So it was like it became like a big money pit, and for uh. I wouldn't say good reason, but for understandable reason where it's like every step of the way, it was like you can either have like the D plus experience, the C experience or the A experience. And like we want, you know, it was our baby. We wanted to get the best casting director. We wanted to get SAG after talent. We didn't want to skimp and then uh, just kept adding up. And that made it a really tough situation, as I'm sure any creator can relate to, where you're putting your own money into it and sort of you start to lose sight or not even lose it, but like the creative becomes so emotionally mixed with the financial burden of it. Yeah. Um, and that made it really hard. Um, you know, it made, it made it a really difficult experience at the time.
0: And you, you were young, you were, you're still young, but you're like a young new writer. So it's like this, you probably saw it like, Oh, this is a way to like prove ourselves as a exactly. creative team. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And like, like, you know, our best case scenario and kind of what, we were hoping for and motivated us was like, Oh, we'll make this movie and then we'll get into Sundance. And then, you know, people will give us briefcases of money and we'll like rule <laughs> the world. And obviously that's not what happened. And you know, not even close. We didn't get into Sundance. We didn't get into any film festival we applied to except for one. And Jonah said, we shouldn't go to that one. Cause then it would look weird. Like we only got into one, which was what happened. So we mm-hmm. didn't go to that. Um, so it was actually really, It's a real bummer of an experience because we had spent like all the money, all the money we had for films, all the money to make something else, all the money we had for me to quit my job and have some security. Um, But after like probably a year and a half when there was some emotional distance from the financial investment, uh, we, we were sort of able to look at it more objectively and say, all right you know, we made this mockumentary about competitive rock paper scissors. It's not the Godfather. It's not the kind of movie that's going to play at Sundance, but you know what? It is like a really fun movie. It's not yeah. like, it's good. It's not embarrassing. We didn't make a, a bad movie. And so, um, we thought like who would want to watch this movie? Uh, you know, people like us, people who were in college a few years you younger than us, it's totally up their alley. Maybe they're stone drunk. <laughs> you know, it's like a good movie to have on in the background. And so I contacted, uh, the group at georgetown that selected the movies that would play like the student activity committee and back then between when movies were in theaters and when they came out on dvd they would play some movies like at one of the you know auditoriums and so i said would you be interested in playing this movie and we made a trailer and the trailer was really good because it was only two minutes long and maybe that's how long rock paper Sisters movie should be but anyway that <laughs> went well georgetown agreed to play it and i thought well why don't i just contact other schools and I ended up contacting like 500 different schools doing some serious level internet stalking because I was like, it's like, all right, Ithaca. Who decides what movies get played at Ithaca? All right, this committee. Who's the movie director of this committee? It was like a 19-year-old freshman girl. And I was like, all right, how do I get her email address? I felt kind of creepy. But the best part of that experience was that I think, you know, we did contact like 500 schools or something like that. And I think, and in the end, 42 of them said yes. And some of them paid us to play the movie. And that was just a great life experience because it was the first time in my life that I was fine with putting myself out there and hearing no so many times over because each yes was worth like, who cares if I got 50 no's? And yeah. that would be something that at the time I didn't realize how valuable it was, but it was when I started, ended up going, falling into journalism and contacting people for console wars because I got a lot of no's. And I know. The kind of person I was before that, I probably would have been like, oh, no one wants to talk to me, kind of sad, kind of use that as an excuse to not go further. But, um, you know, I got used to just putting myself out there and being rejected and being totally fine with it because sometimes you don't get rejected and it's worth it.
0: Yeah, and if you don't, if you're not ever rejected, you're never going to get those yeses. That's like a great right. lesson. And it's, and yeah, you, so you kind of, you got a thick skin to the, the, Rejection didn't mean it was a failure. It just meant you were one step closer to finding the movie's audience. Yeah.
1: And then you also see like, you know, if you're not doing it, at such a, such a high number of, you know, like if we hadn't applied over or sent it to over a hundred people, or I guess a good way to put it is we got rejected from pretty much every film festival. So I think it's maybe an easy takeaway would be, wow, the movie's not good. But when you're doing something and you're getting 20% of people to agree to it you see that there's something there so maybe it's just about the presentation like why are those Uh, 80 percent of people saying no maybe it's just the presentation maybe they could be part of that yes group like it's not a yeah it it was just it was just really a good life experience for me so i encourage people listening to get rejected a lot so that (laughs) you can get better at uh, pitching yourself
0: and it's funny because you talked about how now you and your creative partner are working on this um console wars adaptation and so it's like your career has been this interesting circuitous return to this initial like impetus for writing, right? Like, yeah, w- let's, so let's talk about console wars. Um, that came out in 2014, right? Yep. How many, how long was the process writing it? Like when did, what What was the process from, I'm going to do this to like it being in stores?
1: Sure. So yeah, so it came out in May, 2014, all in all, I would say it was about a three year process, but I would also note that, for the first year and a half of that, I had that day job trading commodities. So it wasn't a full-time process. Uh, whereas my more recent book was a much more of like a n- nine to nine or whatever like job. Uh, so it originally started with what had happened was uh during that during my twenties, my friend and partner Jonah and I would write screenplays and Write stuff that we produced. We produced a television pilot called "The Super Agent" about a talent agent who represents superheroes. And
0: that's good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and so like we we were trying to do stuff, get our name out there, get better at what we were doing, and finally we we wrote a script that was really good. That I think that you know the object, everything is subjective in the art world, but you know it was it was a good script. It would have got done well for our career. Maybe it wouldn't have gotten made, but it would have gotten us uh, good meetings. And it was called. The Sordid Tales of an Evil, Tyrannical Ex-Dictator, and it was about like a Ricky Gervais type of dictator, um, like an arrogant but funny blasé dictator who uh, gets overthrown from his wealthy European country and ends up in the United States in the Witness Protection Program working at the DMV in New Jersey until his life catches up with him. It's an action comedy, and it was a real fun movie. There was something to it. And then about a week after we finished our script, Sasha Baron Cohen announced that he was going to do a movie called The Dictator. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, and like, especially back then, like, Dictator was like a, it just wasn't a common word. Like, I felt like, like, there was not, that really, I guess what I'm saying is that really took the wind out of our sails. And um, no one in Hollywood had any interest in reading our script at that point, even though his, he hadn't written a script yet, even though maybe our movies were very different. And what I came and the conclusion I came to after, I mean, I was devastated. But it was also like I under, I understood it. I understood why a producer would much rather try to get work with Sasha Baron Cohen or wouldn't want to compete against Sasha Baron Cohen um, because he'd done amazing things and he was a yeah. well-known name. And that that's kind of how it should be. Like I wouldn't want to take the risk on an unknown like me. Um, so after that, I kind of realized that uh, I'm going to be writing for the rest of my life because it was something I loved, but I probably was not going to make money doing it. So what I needed to do was to work on projects that I absolutely loved with no financial goal in mind. And, <laughs> you know, that of course was the one that ended up having some financial, uh, uh, reward for it. But that was how I started working on console wars because a few weeks after that, my brother got me a Sega Genesis for, uh, my birthday or for Christmas. It's they're both in December. And he, uh, And I was playing the Genesis, playing NHL 94 and thinking, wow, I haven't played video games in so long. And wow, I really love this. Like, this was such a big part of my childhood. And I wanted to just know more about the behind the scenes story because I love reading behind the scenes books. So before I ever wanted to write a book like Console Wars, I just wanted to read one. And I went to a Barnes & Noble on 86th Street in Manhattan. And there was, you know... As I've told you before, you know there, yeah. there was a there was a there was a movie history section and a music history section, but there was no video game history section. And when I went to ask the woman at the information desk, you know, where's the video game history books, she laughed at me. I asked for one of the books on Sega, Nintendo, or video game history, or business of video games. And, you know, they always are like, oh, well, I can order this book for you. But they didn't even offer that. Like, they were like, nope, there's no such book. Right. Uh, which I thought was crazy. So in the entire two-story, gigantic Barnes & Noble, the only video game-related things they had in the entire store were walkthrough guides. And, you know, I later did some research and realized that it's not, there, there were video game books. There was a great book by David Chef about Nintendo that's kind of like my book is about Sega. And uh, there's a great book by Stephen Kent about the history of video games. But there were so few, they certainly weren't really like commercially mainstream, well-known. And uh, that's sort of what set me off on writing Console Wars, was just me wanting to understand this story like david chef's book is really great it is probably of all the video game books out there the one that's most like mine where it's like a behind the scenes character driven story but his book ends in 1992 93 where nintendo's Mm. on top of the world there's this thing called the world wide web that's coming there's like multimedia cds of the big buzz and sega in his book had already been like defeated and i was like "No, no no now is like when it's getting so exciting i guess so i always kind of viewed my book as like a sequel to that but uh but yeah, from there I just started reaching out to people who had worked at Sega or Nintendo. I used a, as a resource a website that I often made fun of and still sometimes make fun of, which was LinkedIn. Right. And I was just like, well, okay, this person was at Sega from 1992 to 1994. Uh, you know, most of the, the responses I got were no response or no. But then, you know, like 15% of people said, sure, I'll talk to you about it. I, at that point, I probably said that I was interested in writing a book or maybe a screenplay um and then we i ended up just building up a portfolio of people i started interviewing people i had never done that before and then as i was finding this incredible story i was uh talking with jonah and he suggested we do a documentary and i thought that seemed like that would not take away from a book or from a movie or well now a tv show um and and like because you know, my thought was that this was sort of like the, uh, social network of video games in the nineties. It was a generation defining technology based experience. And, uh, I saw a lot of Moneyball aspects to it, how Sega was able to compete with like one tenth of the budget and both Moneyball and the social network were movies that I loved and thought, Hey, I would also love a documentary of those movies. Like I'd love to see Billy Bean or Zuckerberg or the Winklevi." Um, and then, so yeah, from there it took, uh, uh, then over the next year, I kept interviewing people. I ended up getting connected with Tom Kalinsky, who's the main character of the book, and that really told me that there was a great story here. Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and Scott Rudin came on board, and uh, and then finally I quit my job and could work on this full time. And I spent all of 2013 uh, writing the book, uh, and then it came out in 2014.
0: So that's awesome. So you had a so it started as a passion project because there wasn't. The financial like anxiety of oh this needs to make a ton of money right away
1: yeah and and that's something that, that I notice um, happen a lot because you know since then I've probably interviewed over a thousand people I've interviewed a lot of people in the film space because uh, of the work I do and have done with how did this get made Paul Shears podcast yeah. and like a lot of times like I always like to hear people's origin story and it it's surprising to me though maybe it shouldn't be how often. It is where it's the one project that's just pure passion and, you know, not the commercial one that ends up breaking through. And I think that that gives us, you know, that tells us that um, somehow the audience can tell when something comes from a passionate place um and that you can't necessarily replicate that and and, it, and it's a w- interesting thing to think about too because i'm sure you've done work that's passion-fueled and i'm sure you've done work that you wouldn't consider that but it's not like when you do the work that's not passion-fueled it's, you're not passionate about it like because i think you put your heart into everything you do from what i've listened to but there's just a different like, like that dictator script i really enjoyed, but it wasn't yeah. like my baby it wasn't like i'm going no matter what happens i'm gonna walk through hell to get this sort of project and those ones seem to really connect with people
0: interesting that's that's really an inspiring piece of wisdom for people how did you and how did you first get in touch with Seth Rogan? Did you send him the the manuscript or something or
1: yeah good question so um it was before I had written the book. I had a book proposal at that point, so there was not that much that there would have been to send but um like I told you before we started the show that like you know as much as I want both of my books or I think of both my books as just great human stories that would appeal to anyone. I always write with my grandma in mind and make sure that she would find these (laughs) worlds interesting. But they are really just 500-page case studies, like business studies, and there's a lot lot of lessons that I personally learned from each of them. And one of the ones with Sega was that Sega couldn't afford... um, Tom Hanks, Dustin Hoffman's, the A-listers of the world to promote their product. They just didn't have the money, but they could afford um, young celebrities who mm. were more likely to reach the market that they wanted anyway. And so um, I, I had read, I, I literally Googled celebrity gamers. Seth's name came up. Oh. Seth was, uh, no, he was, he was an A-lister pretty much at the time, but he wasn't what he is now. And uh, But I should also just totally make it clear that when I asked my manager to send Seth uh, like a 25-page treatment that I wrote, I had... Zero expectation I was going to ever hear back from him. It wasn't yeah. like a calculated strategic play. It was more like a why not? Like, yeah, maybe this guy will listen. And um, I would have reached out to people who are way less famous than him. But I was shocked, you know, and it was life changing to hear that he wanted to meet with me. I met with him and Evan on January 6th, 2013. Um, no, sorry, 2012. So over seven year, half years ago now, we've wow. been working with them, um, and it was the. It, I realized during that meeting we met for two hours. It was obviously surreal to meet with you know one of my favorite actors and life changing and all that. But it was also just the first time in my film, in my entire writing, any creative career that I met with a decision maker. Like oh, okay, because he yeah. called back my manager later that day and said, like, I want to do it. He'll, he was going to produce the movie based on the book, which is now going to be a TV show. He was going to produce the documentary for me and Jonah to direct, and he was going to end up writing the forward to the book. And I was just like, wow, and I've never met with someone. It was always, every other meeting I had was like, all right, maybe it sounds interesting. Right. My people will call your people. But like, so that was life-changing, though a few days later I was back at my day job at 645 in the morning, and I was like, I thought my life was supposed to change. And it eventually did. Uh, yeah. You know, Scott Rudin got involved. Um, cause Seth had a meeting with him and, uh, he was telling me about this project. And so all that really was a life changing experience. It was, uh, and I, and I finally, on my 30th birthday, I quit my day job or that was my last day of my day job. And I was able to write full time. And I have since then, and I'm wearing shorts today, <laughs> which makes sense because it's September and it's still warm, but I literally wear shorts every day and <laughs> sandals because like, that's my, you know, my mental symbolic thing that like i'm free from the corporate world and so i'm gonna wear shorts no matter what the weather like those ups guys who wear them (laughs) into the winter
0: Uh, you you wear sandals in the winter too or no
1: i I generally do wow unless it's like really thick snow
0: yeah that's amazing
1: (laughs) yeah i should also say i rarely leave my apartment i'm kind of a recluse so it's (laughs) not like as dramatic as it might sound but (laughs) but yeah i mean the last seven years of my life have been awesome i wake up every day i get to write and interview people and that's my dream so i get upset about you know, petty stupid things like we all do, but I never lose sight of the fact that this is so much better than my life used to be and that I'm grateful that I get to do this. And you
0: and you worked to get to that point by by entrepreneurial people bet on themselves, right? That's like a
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's how I view the world. I um I I've always loved entrepreneurship. That really is what both of my books are about, Oculus and Sega are both just great entrepreneurial stories. I find those inspiring. Um you know, there's, the formula for success changes all the time. Luck is a big part of it. Uh, so with all those caveats, you know, I'm fortunate for a lot of factors outside of my control. Fortunate that Seth happened to look at this thing. Yeah. But I think that what I found was that uh, maybe I wouldn't be in this position. Maybe I still would have a day job. But after I found that project I loved and was committed to doing it till the end and sort of found that passion, I would have done that with another project too. And maybe I wouldn't have been able to do it at the scope I've been doing. But um, But I think that entrepreneurial spirit works in whatever level you're at, like you know, and that's what I love in people.
0: That you know, and I think also something about the entre- entrepreneurial spirit that comes through in your first book is how do you name Tom Kalinsky?
1: Yeah, Tom Kalinski. Tom
0: Kalinsky, the I this it has like a Shakespearean drama to it because yeah. there's tragic flaws. There it's like you know the Shakespearean tragedy. You have a tragic flaw a series of unfortunate events and then something like mysterious or supernatural. Right. And so there's, there was like the hubris of Nintendo. And one of the, one of the most interesting scenes is the one where you talk about how, um, Nintendo almost owned PlayStation. Right. And that's like, that was such a, example of their like hubris getting in the way of their success
1: <laughs> yeah i mean in both my book like uh, i remember a friend asked me recently if i would ever be interested in writing fiction and i love writing so i am be interested in writing anything but then i said i was like like in console wars you know the tom Kalinsky fights for sega the parent company in japan to do their next generation system, which turned out to be the Saturn, that instead of that, they should do, they should do a partnership with Sony, which would have been like the Sega PlayStation, or they would have done a partnership with Silicon Graphics, which is what ended up becoming the N64. So there's like the Shakespearean element where he tried to create these two devices that ended up being his demise. And then in my more recent book, you know, two years before Paul Marlucky got fired for political related aspects, there was an email he sent to a developer that was unrelated to really politics, but he said that we don't want to become one of those big mega corps that tells their employees what views they're allowed to share. Oh, wow. And it's just like, you know, both of those things, I know that if it was fiction, my editor would say, like, oh, that's too on the nose, too much foreshadowing. But in real life that stuff happens and it's amazing and it's beautiful and it's sad. And that's what I love <laughs> writing about.
0: And so talking about history of the future, um yeah, speaking of like you as an investigator, I saw one of the interviews where you talk about how Palmer Lucky would always space everything with two sentences. <laughs> but you saw one of his posts was with uh, one space between sentences. So you knew that he hadn't written it where he talked about who he was voting for.
1: Yeah, that was my first clue. Uh, so, I, so after Console Wars came out in May 2014, uh, within the year, I was working on this Oculus book and you know, very seriously working. On, I ended up spending about three and a half years working on it. The, the original due date was September of 2016. Mm. That was when the manuscript was due to HarperCollins. Um, but that was also the same month within actually five, like within a week of when Palmer Lucky was outed as a Trump supporter in a headline that said that he was uh, funding all these white supremacist memes, which was not, that part was not true. He, he was and is a Trump supporter. Um, and my whole story turned upside down. So the book ended up taking two years longer um, and there was a lot of investigation and one of the um, You know, after Palmer was uh, alleged to be a Trump supporter from that article, um, you know, and all these negative things were coming out about him and, you know, the public figure will make the public statement either saying it's true or not. And we can believe them or not. But he made a public statement on his Facebook page that said that he planned to vote for Gary Johnson, which I knew was not uh, not true because I had been in touch with Palmer. He was I was I had already talked to him about Trump support. So either he was lying to me or he was lying to the public. And then I came to realize that his Facebook post where he said he was voting for Gary Johnson only used one space after a period, which is different than his usual two spaces after the period, which I had noticed because I told him how annoying it was because I, I would often transcribe emails that um, people had uh, pre-Facebook acquisition had given to me and then post-Facebook acquisition had, people had leaked to me because I wasn't allowed to get public company internal communications. But that was like my first clue. Or I guess my instinct was that Palmer had written that, but I also assumed that Palmer had maybe been sort of like uh, uh, persuaded into writing that, like that he at least that it was his decision to write that, even if it wasn't true. But Uh then I came to believe, no, he was forced to write that. And then I ended up learning that the person who had written that statement that he posted, which lied about his politics, was written by Mark Zuckerberg. Mm. and. That really changed the scope of my book also because, you know, there's, there have been a lot of Facebook scandals or controversies or questions over the past year and a half. And this is the first one where I think Mark is actually at the center. You know, every other one Mark can say, oh, that's not my department or I didn't know. But Mark literally wrote the statement that Palmer posted, which lied about his political beliefs. And Palmer had to post that or lose his job, which I found really bad. And, you know, we've talked about my support of Hillary Clinton and I've always voted Democrat, and so I very much don't like Donald Trump, but I do believe everyone has the, should have the option to support whichever candidate they choose without risk of their uh, career being threatened, especially when it's a mainstream, one of two candidates in a two-party political system.
0: Yeah. And when it's this idea that if you sell your invention to a big corporation, do you do you then abdicate your freedom of speech? Right. I mean, I, that's the question, Right.
1: And that and that gets into like just a larger question that we're all facing nowadays where the personal and professional line is so blurred and, yeah. you know, where it really comes – where I really have a lot of problems with it because I – this book made me really look a lot at journalism and how inaccurate journalism is and how much it's based on, you know, this game of – the person who writes the article doesn't write the headline, so the headline's not accurate. But the person and they don't feel, you know, the person who writes the article doesn't feel bad because they didn't write the wrong sure. headline. And the <laughs> person who wrote the headline says, "Oh, I'm just writing the headline. I didn't <laughs> write the article." Uh, so this this like diffusion of responsibility. But I obviously I see a lot of journalists post stuff on Twitter, and it's like seems very unprofessional to me, but they could maybe make the case that that's just like the personal side of their life. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, we see that more and more, just what you do in your personal life, seeming people, a lot of people want that to have an impact on your professional life, oftentimes to have you lose your job or to make mm-hmm. your employer aware of it. Um, and so, um, you know, I think with Palmer Lucky, uh, you know, one of my favorite parts of the story is that, um, you know, some people have said to me, after reading it, like, oh, am I supposed to feel bad for Palmer? Am I supposed to sympathize with him? And my answer to that is you should feel however you want. Right. But I just think that um, he is such a great proxy for all these things that are going on nowadays and they happen to people in different degrees. And and no, you don't really need to feel bad for Palmer. He made a lot of money. He now has another company that's almost well, that is worth a billion dollars. And that's because he's an incredible entrepreneur and a brilliant guy, but yeah. like but maybe you don't need to feel bad for Palmer, but the next time you read a headline about someone who's allegedly a racist, you will try to think, well, what is that actually based on? Or sh- should I join the mob to try to get them to lose their job when I don't actually know more information? And just you know, so much of our life just is lived digitally these days, and the digital world's a pretty crazy place. And, and Palmer's story and what happened with him at Facebook uh, really opened my eyes to a lot of things, and I think it's just a good av- avatar for a lot of that stuff
0: and it's interesting when you're writing you're probably thinking about how you are synthesizing all this history and all and projecting in the future and there's this idea probably that like in 10 years 20 years people might point at the history of the future in college textbooks college class and be like this is a textbook this explains like where things were shifted and lucky palmer is an example of someone who like you said manifests that transition right and so that but that that's interesting because that happened you said towards the end and so you had to extend the deadline to tell this story right
1: yeah yeah like i so i think that um like the console wars that subtitles generation that uh, the battle would define a generation part of that's tongue-in-cheek but i do feel like there's a very generational aspect to it a lot of people have a certain uh very excited and nostalgic feeling when you talk about second and i really thought of that book as a time capsule i really wanted to capture the time and so beyond the business narrative and the characters like you know there was one part of console wars where um uh, we went into the MTV movie awards through Howard Stern and his character Fartman. And yeah. like, you know, we could have just got to the actual information of that, but I felt like that was just so indicative of the nineties. Right. Howard Stern was famous and that he was famous for playing this guy, Fartman. And so I always try to bring in other elements of the culture so that it feels like it, it captures a lot of these things. And that was true of this book too, though I didn't realize the ways at first, you know, I really thought of it more as like a time capsule of the gaming period. That's why I, there's uh, a lot of references to Ouya, which was also another successful Kickstarter company about a mm. month before Oculus. Um, and then a lot of this political stuff. I just felt like it is so indicative of this time that we're living in, and 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 Palmer was such a perfect proxy for all these issues. Um, and it, was, it turned out to be a sad ending. But and then the you know the 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 next level way I was thinking about it was that you know Facebook bought oculus and has invested billions of dollars in virtual reality because they want to essentially own the metaverse the virtual world they really want to plant a flag in this next generation of computing we could you know we could spend all day prognosticating whether or not vr takes off whether ar takes off all these things but 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 we know what facebook's objective was and is it's to own the virtual and the VR, AR space. And so it makes you wonder like, well, if that were to come to pass, what kind of a leader would they be? And I think that we see from the way that they treat their own executives that they're probably going to take a similar stance because you see that even nowadays, you know, with uh, the kinds of people that they ban on Facebook and the potential conservative bias. And I know, I don't know, on a corporate level, I think that that there's a conversation to be had. But speaking to actual employees, I could say that, anecdotally, most of the people I speak with have a very strong conservative, um, you know, anti-conservative bias. Mm -hmm. And I think that that impacts the company. So basically, I just thought narratively, it made a lot of sense where if Facebook were to get their goal, how would they rule the digital world? And I think how they treated Palmer and how they just how they reacted to the whole thing is indicative of what they would do, where um, I'm open to the argument that um, a private company should be able to fire an employee if they... Create um, a political firestorm, or if they don't like their political beliefs, um, it's illegal in California. But you know, uh, ideologically, mm. I'm open to that argument. But what I really found most troubling was just ha- you know, it's like it's always it's it's not the original crime; it's the cover up. So it was how they. Um, exiled Palmer how they told how they lied to Facebook employees about what had happened how they told the Facebook employees that Palmer was requesting additional time
2: mm-hmm. and
1: basically you know I was in touch with a lot of these people at Oculus and at Facebook and a lot of people leaked information to me not because they were supportive of Palmer or even liked Palmer but because they thought that what was happening was so unfair and they wanted to make sure it got out there and I you know it was weird to me though I guess a nice compliment that a lot of early Oculus employees um, who I contacted before the book came out and gave them some chapters, they were like grateful to finally just know what happened with Palmer because Mm. no one had ever told them the truth. And um, you know, for a company, for any company, I think that's bad. But for a company like Facebook that is allegedly based on transparency and being so open, uh, I found it to be especially damning. Um, Yeah. But hopefully more people know and people do seem to be paying more attention to what big tech companies do for good and for bad.
0: And Lucky Palmer's story is interesting because, like you write about, he started out just experimenting, and he was in Long Beach, living in a trailer, right when he did his first yeah. experiments. And that's very Ready Player One, huh?
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, so just to clarify, his name yeah. is Palmer Lucky. I'm sorry, though a lot of people switch it, but I, yeah, but it's always Palmer so interesting Lucky. to me because it's like again the fiction versus reality thing. Like if I was going to be writing a fictional book about this kid living in a trailer whose life is uh, pretty uh, rag side of rags to riches and his life changed, it's like you know, so much of the entrepreneurial success is based on luck. So what better name for a character yeah. than like Palmer lucky. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And, and like, I always, I, I related to him too. And and really loved this idea that he was living in a trailer in his parents driveway, he was 19 years old and he had gutted out this trailer to be like the ultimate mad scientist laboratory. And he was just building VR headsets. And obviously like all of us, he wanted to find success in life, but that was like what he was going to do. That was what his passion was. And he was going to continue to do that no matter what. And it, Lo and behold, uh, some circumstances fall into place. John Carmack, the legendary game maker, uh, got in touch with him, really liked what he was making. And then, uh, like, I, I the, the first chapter of the book is called The Boy Who Lived to Mod, which was right. my nod to uh, Harry Potter, to The Boy Who Lived, because I always thought of, like, Palmer's story as like a Harry Potter story where he's just like an ordinary kid doing his thing. Life's not super awesome. And then he gets thrust into this magical world of Silicon Valley. And you see the pros Mm -hmm. and the cons of all that. Um, And I guess that Mark Zuckerberg would be the Voldemort in that Mm -hmm. analogy.
0: In the book, it's this question of, I think it's always on our minds, um, is Facebook good or evil? Is Is Google good or evil? Are mass media corporations do they have our best interest in mind or is there sin in that they are indifferent because it's kind of like Moby Dick, like the Moby Dick is, it's more or less doesn't care about the crew, but they can't stop harassing him and that ends their downfall. Right. So it's like, do the comp do, do you think Facebook is evil or they just are so big they can't take a good stand on everything? Like that's a very broad question, but
1: yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a really great question. Because one, I think it's incredibly important and something that I hope a lot of people are thinking of, and two, it's like basically I wake up every day wondering that. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's a lot of things to break down with that question. One, I don't, I don't, no, I don't think Facebook is evil. Like I yeah. don't think they're a force of evil. But then, like, semantically, like, what does that mean, evil? I think that, um, I think that the book through the Oculus story gives you a really good sense of what Facebook is all about, and I'll mention a few examples. Like one is that. Um, before all the political drama with Palmer, Mark Zuckerberg in June 20, 2015 wrote like a really long email to his uh, executives about his vision for AR and VR. And uh, I included most of the letter. Uh, I thought it was a really good insight into what he was thinking. And at the top of it, he, uh, he sort of prefaces this by saying that he's going to talk about the business solutions in addition to the, you know, like the most important thing is the value that this technology will provide to humanity, and that's just a really crazy way of looking at it. Like I, wow. uh, I would never. I write my books for entertainment and to learn, to teach lessons, but I never think of what I do as improving humanity. Like that's a very grand way of looking at what you do, and I think that there's a lot of evidence, certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence, that Facebook has done the opposite to that with humanity. You know, has sure. has has not helped humanity very much. Um, so but I do think that he sort of views himself as like a benevolent dictator in that respect. Mm. And it gives you a good sense of, 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 you know, his way of thinking. Um, and then the other thing too, is, I I think it goes back to what you said at the top that like, Uh, with politics you can look at two people come look at the same situation and reach a different conclusion based on their differing views and I think that that happens a lot so I think one person's good it's another person's evil Mm. and I think the real problem that I have with Facebook and Google and a lot of these companies is how um, non-transparent they are or how deceitful they are in what they do Um, you know I I can't speak to the algorithms at Facebook about whether they um, bias against certain political ideologies like there's a lot of you know, conservatives who think that's the case. It seems like that's the case, but I don't have actual evidence, but I do have a lot of evidence that they treat conservative employees differently Mm -hmm. and, and worse. And that I've spoken to a lot of conservative employees who have been discriminated against and presented me with tangible evidence. That's the case. And, and, you know, like I said earlier, like Facebook's a private company and, whether or not it's illegal in California, I'm o- I'm open to the argument that they should be able to run the business the way they want. But that's not how they present themselves to the world. They present themselves as a fair platform. Um, and I think that a lot of the problem is I just wish that a lot of these companies were more honest about what they were really about. Facebook is a mission-oriented company. They're trying to connect people. They use algorithms without telling their users to try to uh, achieve certain objectives for their ads and also for the social issues that they care about. Right, right. And, and they should just unless they're going to be transparent about it, then there's going to be a lot of concern and a lot of collateral damage to that.
0: Well, when you're that big to say, to, to express any sort of political leaning, you're going to lose a lot of your audience, right? You're going to lose a lot of your users. And that's no one predicted that no one predicted that a corporation would get so big that it would influence history, influence relationships, influence, take up so much time that it's like, we're, we're on the verge of a new frontier. Where, like, they are. They're as big. It's like as powerful as the government in some ways. You know,
1: it really is. Yeah. And, like another good example on this one, I uh, was not in my book, and I'm maybe going to butcher a little bit, but like I remember at Google, they did an initiative to help increase uh, voter turnout. At, uh, this was, I believe, in the 2016 election, and um, so they made changes to their platform to increase voter turnout, and it it did work, um, but it inc- but it was. You know, and it targeted, I believe, Hispanic voters, but those Hispanic voters voted for the wrong candidate that the that Google wanted. And <laughs> so it's like that that is not that is anti-democracy where you're, right. you know, it, it, like where it's not actually about voter turnout, it's about voter turnout for the people who are gonna vote for the candidate that you want. Um <laughs> and then there's just the whole other aspect to it where I think that social media as well as the media are have done such a ter- you know have done such an incredible job at making us all terrible communicators and going to hot takes and hating each other when really we don't we yeah. don't like I remember uh, I was meeting with a friend yesterday and he mentioned a cartoon um, where it's like two dogs with a fence in between them and they're barking at each other and it was supposed to be like an analogy for the internet and then once the fence is removed they kind of like walk away from each other like we're barking but we're not really gonna fight right. and I said. And I said, that to me was like how the internet was like 2006 or 2016 or whatever. Now I feel like it's two dogs on opposite sides of a fence who initially are like, hey, hey, and they're fine. And then the media is like, hey, that dog has a bone. You don't have a bone. Or that dog's getting this and you don't have that. And right. like basically creating all this conflicts that they hate each other for not, you know, they didn't have to hate each other. Then the fence is removed and they just destroy each other.
0: Um, mm, that's so dark. It's yeah. true. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I mean, uh, like the I've always the platform I've always liked the most is Twitter. Um, there's a lot of toxic behavior on there, but I did like that it, it lets you have the timeline be chronological, so it's not being mm. sorted by an algorithm for mm. you. But even just in the past few days, I've had to switch it from the home screen where they choose what you see to the like. I feel like more and more they're trying to get away from that, and that also makes me wary because it kind of gets back to your question of like, I don't think either of these companies are good or bad. I think it's in the eye of the beholder. But they, they're they all algorithmically based and they give the user so little information about what's informing these algorithms and so little choice. Like that's the other thing too. I, I remember realizing one day, because when I went to like the Facebook settings, like how can I change my feed? Mm-hmm. And the settings that you, ha- the options you have are less than if you were to just like press start in a typical video game. Like for, for something that connects 2 billion people, they really give you so little power to control it. Like, <laughs> That seems wild. You should have so much control over what you want to see.
0: If it's the yeah, if it's your portal to the world.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And and they're all competing with each other, all the different platforms. And going back to console wars, something I thought was really interesting was how you got into how legally Sega could make fun of Nintendo in its commercials or how like, you know what I mean, or or Nintendo could make fun of Sega like was that was that one of the first examples of like mainstream media interactive media corporations being able to denigrate each other in their ads or like is that legal you know?
1: Um I, I know that part of it was I mean it was, it was a time when Sega was in like more of like a smaller nothing to lose attitude and Nintendo yeah. would often send them cease and desist letters. Right. And and I think in most cases Tom Kalinsky and Sega obliged but as Tom told me like but we already got the impact. Like we had, we had it out for a week and people saw it. So yeah, we don't yeah. need it anymore. Um, I mean, I to me, that was my first memory of it being so heated. I know that there was like the Pepsi challenge uh, mm. and the Coke versus Pepsi and Nike versus Reebok, but I don't think that they were, they certainly weren't as aggressive head to head. There could be examples out there and maybe listeners will tell us and I'd love to see those commercials from the 80s and 90s that were as blatant, but it really was a different level. And, you know, just like, sega went after nintendo head on yeah Yeah. they
0: sure did and and it's interesting how that became the conversation at school like oh did you hear this did you hear that it's almost like the republicans versus democrats you know what i mean it really is there was such
1: a sense of tribalism and i guess um i know that i look back through rose-colored glasses because it was my childhood but i did feel like it was like respectful like yeah like i I would talk about how great Genesis is and make fun of the Nintendo kid or whatever, but like we still played football together, we still <laughs> had fun. I would still go to his house and play it like and versus nowadays what you see online when you know what what people experience when they think of console wars, it's a lot more heated, it's a lot more lacking of respect, which I think is just indicative of a lot of where we are culturally and the tools you have to do that <laughs>
0: yeah and yeah, and that's kind of what's kind of endearing about. The first, your first book, and that it's like you remember a time when things hadn't escalated, the tribalism hadn't escalated to where it is now.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Like, I'll say, um, for the past few months, my full time, you know, focus has been on the Console Wars documentary. Mm-hmm. And aside from how much fun I'm having revisiting interviews with Tom Kalinske and Alan Nilsson and Peter Mayne and Howard Lincoln, all these characters that I loved and wrote about in Consul Wars like the single most enjoyable part of working on the console wars documentary is that unlike what I see in my daily life, when I log online or read the news or unlike um, what I experienced reporting on the history of the future and what I've received as a reaction from some people to my covering of Palmer being a Trump supporter, like just covering stuff from the nineties, everything feels so much happier. And again, I know part yeah. of it is because of looking back fondly on an era from the nineties, but, th- but, but, but a lot of it too is just the media coverage and, and how it was not trying to be sensational in a good versus bad way. It wasn't talking about, um, you know, what Sonic lacked or what Nintendo was, you know, what Nintendo executives were doing and why we shouldn't buy products from them because they had made certain comments. And it was just like, um, you know, it was a really nice time. Um, you know generally speaking, and it's just been nice to, I guess, escape to that period for a little bit of time again.
0: <laughs> so, you so that's been your main focus is writing and, and producing and working on that show right now.
1: No, well, so yes. there's two parts there's a, yeah. a television series, yeah, um, like uh, that, um, that's gonna be directed by Jordan Voight Roberts and written by Mike Rosolio and produced by Seth and Evan and Scott and myself and Jonah. Um, and that uh, we have a pilot script for that. Um, you know, uh, I I guess I can't really get into much details about where we are with that process, but it's moving along really nicely. I, I loved reading that pilot script. It felt like it was Mike's voice and it felt like his, but it also felt like it was really inspired by the book. Like it felt like a good synergy, um, which doesn't always happen with an adaptation. And then, um, there's also the documentary. Both of them are going to be, uh, Premiering and available on CBS All Access, the streaming platform for CBS, um, but it is two different projects. So we are, um, you know, pretty. We're 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 close to finishing up with the documentary, hoping to be done by the end of the year, and then maybe debut it in early 2020. Um, and that's the that's the stuff that is giving me that warm feeling because Jonah and I are dealing so much with just like archival material and yeah, right. Like, like the other day, like for me, it's like. Christmas, like like the best thing ever, is just getting good archival because so much of it was lost from that era, and like we got a, like a an MTV interrupting the broadcast from nineteen ninety two, uh, you know, uh, of like what was going on at CES, and I was like, oh my god, this is like, I, I, I. I I get a lot of my joy from my work, and I was like, I felt bad because, like, my wife was telling me stuff that was like, I guess, good news in our personal life. But yeah. I was like, so much happier to just get good archival from 1992
0: MTV. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man! And you are working on another book project, or you're, is it not? Is it too soon to talk about that?
1: Uh, we can talk about it briefly, yeah. as I mentioned to you before the show. Um, you know, I, I still don't know what I'm going to work on. Uh, I guess one of the big takeaways for me with both of these books, or specifically with the second one, is that. Uh, any book I write is probably going to be a really long one and take several years whereas I thought maybe Contours was just uniquely long (laughs) but I like getting into the world of the characters I like tangenting a little bit to try to get the cultural things and uh and so I'm looking at a bunch of different options. Uh, but one story that I'm looking to tell, um, uh, probably as a documentary, um, more so than a book, but but a story that I would like to, you know, I always go into it, like, what do I want to read about? What do I want to hear about? And I've been uh, corresponding with Ross Ulbricht, the creator of Silk Road, the, the dark web, um, you know, Amazon for drugs or however it was known. Right. Um, and uh, I find that to be a very fascinating story that touches on a lot of important tech topics from our time. And, uh, you know, he's never really had his story told. And so I'm going to try to help make that happen. Um, probably as a documentary, cause I'd like to hear it told in his voice, but, uh, that, that there's, there's a lot of interesting aspects to that case. Uh, a couple of FBI agents, uh, ended up going to jail for corruption. in The case, oh, wow. um, he, you know, he, he received double life sentences, which is pretty unprecedented for nonviolent crimes. And, um, and people, you know, like my wife asked me, like, do I think that was unfair? And at this point, I don't know. Like, I I think that's the fun for me is that I'm not going into this like an activist trying to get Ross out of prison. I, mm-hmm. I'm going into it like I'm just very curious to know what happened and to form my opinions after I get that information and to have the luxury of hearing it from the horse's mouth as opposed to other people that have been talking about what the horse has been up to for years. Uh, Where yeah. someone
0: else wrote the headline, right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Do you, I bet he felt? He felt feels. I mean, and if you don't want to talk about this, it's fine. But like having someone to talk to must be cool, like amazing. I don't
1: know. I imagine it's. That's how know. I would feel too. I also yeah. don't want to. You know, that's like a way that makes me feel good about myself and sure, benefits yeah. myself. So I try not to put too much into that. Yeah. Um. You know, he does have a fiance, and he has his mom, who's been a great advocate on his behalf. Um. But I, I do try to uh, I do try to be conscious of the fact that he's probably not corresponding with a lot of people and to try to provide to try to ask him questions that, that he's not thinking about, that he isn't getting from his mom or from his fiance and mm. uh to just talk about different aspects of his life and then for me, because I'm, you know, I've never been to prison. I have so little experience with that world. Like I, that whole thing is very fascinating to me too. Mm. Um, just what's it like to be locked away and have lost your control and to know that you're going to have to be there for the rest of your life unless some, you know, crazy clemency sort of thing were to happen. Like that's, you know, uh, unfortunately, it's something that's, you know, he's one of a statistic of tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people who are in that situation some deserve some not but you know just that th- his day-to-day life is so different from from yours and mine
0: yeah wow that's interesting that so but all the but all the books or all the, your work has this theme of the narrative of how we maintain our humanity and our good sides as the world changes and as things become like not so certain right like the idea of the I guess the, the continuation of the human spirit as forces outside of us collapse upon us. I don't know. It seems no, like no, it's no that's, it's, I think there's yeah. there's a
1: lot of merit to what you're saying. And I would also say that it's as usually it's the characters in the book are protagonists in that collapsing of the world, the changing of the world. Yeah. You know, Palmer Lucky's trying to change the face of video games. Tom Kalinske is changing what video games mean. So as the world is changing around him it, you know he is an agent of change and ross was an agent of change as well um and and yeah my interest is always more in the people maybe it's because i'm just a technological layperson but like i remember part of when i like I, I i think part of what in hindsight really inspired me was i was reading barbarians at the gate which is you know one of the most famous behind the scenes business books of all time mm. about um nabisco and uh and and the and the Cigarette company, RJR uh, Nabisco. And like, I remember one part of it was that um, his son, uh, one of the main character's sons, had either uh, died or been in a terrible accident. It was in a coma. And then it just moved on to like the next business scene. And I was like, that's like so traumatizing. How I'm sure that that had an impact on his life or the people around him. And I just wanted to know more about that. So I'm always very interested in the, the human side of these stories and the universal side of these stories. And I think that's why, you know, whether even though Consul Wars is a story of the 90s and History of the Future is a story about the teens, like I think they'll be universally um, accessible. Like my, I, yeah. my hope is that, you know, 10 years from now, I, 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 I was very conscious of the fact that I wanted to write a book uh, about VR and about Oculus and about Palmer that 10 years from now would be as relevant then as it is now. Um, because I didn't know whether VR was going to succeed and I didn't think that really mattered. I think that what mattered was that it was a story about this group of people coming together and, and accomplishing this thing that was seemingly impossible and how they couldn't have done it without all four of the people with, uh, Brendan Arib and Nate Mitchell and Mike Antonoff. And, uh, maybe they don't all see it that way all the time, but they mm-hmm. really like you know. A lot of times, uh, collaboration is key to uh, entrepreneurial success.
0: That's cool, man. Well, I Blake, I appreciate your time and I appreciate your thoughts. And I want to invite the audience to follow you on your social media channel. So, where do you like to direct people?
1: Uh, I really like, like I said, Twitter is my favorite platform. I'm at Blake J Harris NYC. Um, I'm really compulsive about replying. So if you contact me, I'll almost definitely reply. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear what you thought of the book, good or bad. If you have any questions, I also feel like I've been fortunate enough to be brought into the world of Sagan into the world of Oculus. And as such, I feel like I'm, um, sort of have a responsibility to share what I've learned, um, with others. So if you have questions, I almost always get back to them.
0: That's amazing. What a great invitation. (laughs) Well, well, thank you very much. And be sure to check out both of his books. They're both on Amazon. You can listen to them on Audible and digitally. You, they're available digitally, too, I yep, to imagine. Yep. So, both
1: are available as ebooks.
0: All right, cool. Thank you, Blake. Take care.
3: Sega vs. Nintendo, David vs. Goliath. Goliath, Sonic vs. Mario, a challenge up arises.
0: Marketing and strategy, the tortoise and the hare. Yeah. Defined a generation, here's yes. the story, we were there. In
3: 1983,
4: et the game. A catastrophic failure and a shame. But the start of an insane war. Atari and television, Coleco. But too many choices just divided the people.
3: Shigeru Miyamoto knew it
0: couldn't be the end So we built a game called Donkey Kong, which helped to launch Nintendo. Through guerrilla marketing, he shook the planet from its slumber. When he Introduced to soon to be iconic
4: Brooklyn plumber. And an entertainment company from Hawaii would enter, built on slot machines, but became a game contender. They started off slowly, but would help them get across with a sleek black system and a speedy edge. Oh. It was Sega vs. Nintendo, David vs. Goliath, Sonic versus Mario. A challenge of
3: arises. defined a generation. Like no system had before. Yeah. A battleground in every store. Choose your side, console war. Sega vs. Nintendo, David vs. Goliath. Sonic versus Mario. A challenge of arises. defined generation. Like no system had before. A battleground in every store. Choose your side, console Wars. Nintendo used relationships with Walmart and with Target. Keeping Sonic off the shelves. They monopolized the market with a 95% share. That's ridiculous. So Sega got meticulous with marketing conspicuous. Yeah, they
4: hired a top dog formerly of Mattel. Turned the game around and new strategies would prevail. Toys were just fast but games were big businesses. Sega went hard with the relaunch of the Genesis. While Manura
3: Arakawa wanted straight control of every game and console that nintendo sold when the game genie dropped they sued Galu. In the players with this stuck up attitude.
4: I heard the Genesis claim to do what Nintendo don't. They skipped the kids and marketed to the young adults. With major licenses like Spider Man and Michael Jackson. In Game Genie action, the war was on again. It was Sega
3: vs. Nintendo.
4: David vs. Goliath. Sonic versus Mario. A challenge ever rises.
3: Define a generation. Like no system had before. A battleground in every store. Choose your side. Console Wars. So it was, was. Sega vs. Nintendo. David vs. Goliath. Sonic versus Mario. The Challenger arises. Yes. Defined a challenge ever rises. Define a generation. Like no system ever before. A battleground in every store. Choose your side. Console Wars.
0: 1992. The evidence was there Sega's lead was gaining with an increased market share So Nintendo leveled up with that Super FX chip The 3D looked amazing And Starbucks was a hit
4: They hit them off with portables Sega's next strategy Game Gear was tight But it burned through some batteries Blood and Mortal Kombat Jawa's seen in Night Trap Congress built the ratings board his parents didn't like But then
3: Donkey Kong Country and Mario Kart Brought Nintendo to the finish line and showed a lot of heart With timeless characters that we all still adore From Pikachu to Mega Man to Mario and more. And Sega dropped
4: the 32X, the Sega CD, to Dreamcast yeah. but it was not the same. Uh, Sega was not the game. No. We had some good times. The past was a blast though and later Sonic even made a cameo yes. with Smash Bros. It was Sega
3: vs. Nintendo.
4: David vs. Goliath. Sonic versus Mario. A challenge ever rises.
3: Define a generation. Like no system had before. A battleground in every store. Choose your side, Console voice so was Sega vs. Nintendo. David vs. Goliath. Sonic versus Mario. A challenge ever rises. Define a generation. Like no system before. A battleground in every store Choose your side, Hustle Wars
0: That was, of course, Console Wars by Megaran and myself, and that was based on the book Console Wars by Blake J. Harris. Thank you for your time, man. Awesome talking to you. Thanks for being on the show. We have, right now, it's time for the MC, the MC Lars, Lars Patreon Lartian, Lartian of, the, of week. the week. This week, we got Morgan Miller, great dude, a photographer, talented man. He actually came to see me with the Aquabats in Park and took some awesome pictures. So this is Morgan Miller's shout-out. Calling in. Let's see what he's got to say.
2: Hey, Lars. Uh, This is Morgan Miller. Uh, We met at the uh, most recent concert. It was my first concert that uh, I've been to in a while. Uh, My first one I've seen you in. It was the one in New Jersey at the Stone Pony, Asbury Park. Uh, Met you with my wife. And you honestly were... Are one of the most genuine and kind people I've ever met in my life. Uh, favorite song by you would be a difficult choice. Uh, it's gotta be a tie between gi- this gigantic robot kills and Mr. Raven. Uh, just cause I'm a fan of Poe and gigantic robot kills was actually the first song of yours that I heard and got me into your, your music. Uh, but yeah. Uh, you're, just a, you're a great guy and I was coming out of a rough spot and you, help, you helped me uh, see that there are still still a lot of good in the world and a lot of love, so thank you for that. Uh, anyway, good meeting you. Um, take care and hope you're doing well.
0: Thank you, Morgan. That means a lot to me. Thanks for being on the show. Next week, ladies and gentlemen, we got Suzanne McDermott, whose song, The Roswell Incident, I covered for Indie Rocket Science. She's a teacher, a healer, a musician, very interesting woman, really cool to get to talk to her. So tune in next week. In the meantime, nerdcore.com for the dates. Come see me and Oakley Doakley on the road. Until then, have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone.